Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. This week on Babel, John talks to Sanam Vakil, Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, about how Iran is thinking about the Biden presidency. Then Natasha, John, and I discuss how President Biden might approach Iran. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Sanam Vakil is Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House in the UK, where she leads the Future Dynamics in the Gulf Project and the Iran Forum. She is also the James Anderson Professorial Lecturer in Middle East Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Bologna, Italy. Sanam, welcome to Babel. Thank you so much for having me, John. What is the Iranian conclusion on the prospects of negotiations with the United States after they made the deal with the Obama administration and then had the Trump administration eviscerate it? I think that there is no one conclusion. That's the reality. Iranian politics are factional and there is no homogenous opinion within the political establishment. What there is, I think, are a mix of feelings of disappointment, mistrust, and uncertainty um, about whether a newly elected president will be able to have the capital and investment to get back to the negotiating table with the United States and try to deliver a more sustainable nuclear agreement. What are the institutional centers of support for the framework that the Obama administration struck, the JCPOA? Are there places that still think there is viability in that? Yes, there's the executive branch led by President Rouhani. And while he doesn't have complete control of the foreign policy making process, his team are part of the Supreme National Security Council. And that body um, is composed of members of the cabinet, members of the armed forces, the IRGC, judiciary, executive branch, uh, head of the legislature. And together they debate different strategies um, and make recommendations to Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, who makes a decision based on consensus. And Rouhani had been the, the secretary general of the National Security Council. I first saw him in Tehran in 2000 when he was in that role. And he struck me at that time as the only person in the whole conference who seemed to have freedom of action. Yet Rouhani's big bet was I can make a deal with the United States. And the deal has neither delivered the economic returns that he had advertised, nor has it delivered sustained U.S. compliance. Doesn't that discredit that line of thought within the National Security Council about how Iran gets out of its current set of constraints? I think you captured um, Iran's dilemma quite perfectly, John. On the one hand, yes, uh, Rouhani's strategy and the JCPOA has failed to deliver. At the same time, though, the political establishment is very aware that in order to unlock this sort of Gordian knot of sanctions and containment and pressure, it does have to, at some point, arrive at some new deal with the United States. So from Tehran's perspective, the question is not if they will make a deal, it's how they will make a deal. 
And what we have been witnessing over the past two years in Iran's maximum resistance campaign, where they tried to up the ante and push back against sanctions through all sorts of destabilizing activities in the Persian Gulf, um, in Iraq, in Yemen, that was designed to obtain leverage and prepare the terrain for what Iran will put on the table and how Iran uh, will discuss. The problem is, and I think this is what's oftentimes missing in um, the American assessment of Iran is there's an assumption that Iran has to do it and has to do it now because of American pressure. And that is a miscalculation because mindset in Tehran is that they can sustain the pressure and they feel quite buoyed by the fact that uh, they have managed, uh, despite having all facets of their economy uh, being fully sanctioned, survive. They're not thriving, but they're surviving. I want to get back to the issue of timing, but I think the immediate issue of timing is Iran has presidential elections scheduled for June. Rouhani is now a lame duck. It's unclear when a Biden administration comes in whether there'll be anybody to deal with on the other side, whether Rouhani would have the ability to make a deal. But there's also, I guess, the question of whether negotiations with the U.S., the posture toward the United States would play any role in the presidential elections. Should the U.S. try to advertise something? Should the U.S. try to indicate that there's something to be gained by engaging to ensure that there's a constructive attitude in Iran? Or or should the U.S. just sit back and, and will the Iranians negotiate in their own good time anyway? A couple of things. I would say the U.S. shouldn't make any sort of direct statements of intent or think their statements could impact the elections. But any outreach and any effort to engage with Iran between January 20th and Iran's June 2021 elections could indeed have an impact. At least I think they could. And let me explain how and why. Iran's electorate has been more and more disengaged from the political process over the past few years. And we know in terms of statistics that participation in the parliamentary elections that were held in February of uh, 2020 were at the all-time low. I think at the political level, a Biden victory could matter since the pathway to negotiations is something that Iran is weighing. And Over the past few months, we've seen wide array of candidates be floated, something that I have never witnessed before so early on. The Supreme Leader and hardliners want to find the right conservative candidate because there is this assumption conservatives will win next election. So what matters here is finding the right conservative, not the hardline neoconservative, but a pragmatic conservative. Wasn't Rouhani sort of a pragmatic conservative? I mean, that's always the way I interpreted him. Well, first of all, you're right. Rouhani was a pragmatic conservative. I think what's interesting is a lot of Iranian presidents come in as sort of pragmatists and become more left of center and become slightly reformists. The only one who didn't take that sort of trajectory was Ali Khamenei, who then went on to be supreme leader and became much more conservative. So I think that for the conservative camp, they're also not monolithic. They have diverse factions and views within them. And I think that, you know, the pragmatists are probably looking to uh, get back to the negotiating table. The question is, who do they have that can represent them? And will they be able to negotiate 
more effectively, let's say, than the Rouhani team um, with his very sort of articulate foreign minister, you know, who has represented the Islamic Republic, I think, more forcefully than the president has. And I think more right of the pragmatists are the neoconservatives who have a very uh, much more principless stance against the United States. And they, too, have shown some inclination to negotiate because the former nuclear negotiator, uh, Saeed Jalili, for example, has negotiated on behalf of um, the Islamic Republic under the Ahmadinejad administration, but he was not perceived to be successful at all. And they've been more confrontational and ideological. And there is an assumption that they might not be able to deliver a deal. What Zarif has said, starting in the fall, I think, is that if the U.S. is coming back into compliance with JCPOA, the beginning of talks with the United States is not about how Iran will come back into compliance. It's about how the U.S. will compensate Iran for the cost of sanctions. Is that a gambit? Is that just a a ploy? Or do you think the Iranians really will try to string along a Biden administration that seems eager to put relations with Iran back into some sort of established framework? I think it's an opening salvo. And you're also hearing it in their statements now that we're only going to work through the framework of the JCPOA. This is their opening position. And compensation shouldn't be read as literal compensation. I think that over the past four years, really, the damage that has been done has been to the very little trust that was built between Tehran and Washington. And so compensation should be read as some sort of face-saving justification or confidence-building measure that could be offered to Iran to show goodwill. Goodwill begets goodwill, and and it shouldn't be read as money on a plane or any of those sort of moves. But, you know, perhaps it looks like lifting the travel ban against uh, Iranians or offering um, early COVID sanctions relief. Symbolic gestures that can be read in Tehran and sold in Tehran as a sign of goodwill. It also seems to me that that generally in in the run-up to negotiations, Iran tends to misbehave rather than behave well. That the U.S. senses you want to create a good climate, so everybody's on their best behavior. The Iranians seem to misbehave. And then the first concession they'll make in the negotiations is we'll stop misbehaving. And then they feel they've gotten something without actually giving anything up because it was something they hadn't started with. If we do get into negotiations, what would you expect some Iranian efforts to be to improve their negotiating position Because in my assessment, the Iranians won't do what the U.S. will do, which is create a good climate, but instead would try to create a sort of sense of urgency and necessity to deal with Iran, as we saw with what were reportedly Iranian attacks on Gulf oil facilities about a year and a half ago. Well, urgency could be created through sort of provocational attacks or behavior between now and the inauguration, um, which could come from either the Trump administration or the Iranians not being able to hold back in any response. And I think that that's something uh, we should be looking out for. But I think in a second phase, there will definitely be pressure coming from the Zarif negotiating team on uh, U.S. negotiators to provide Iran with some compensation or face-saving solutions that come early in order to placate conservatives within the country. And because competition in Iran is so high in advance of the presidential elections, I think 
Iranian conservatives are going to be quite obstructive. And I don't expect that we will immediately see any sort of escalation in Iraq or in the Persian Gulf or in Yemen. But of course, we should expect it. But here in this space, this is where sort of multilateral pushback from the U.S. and the European countries um, will be important to send strong and clear messages that this is not a JPOA or JCPOA negotiation all over again. We're going to set the record straight. We're going to try to make this right. And in order to make this right... Um, It's going to require different behavior from all parties, including Iran. It sounds almost like the Iranians feel they have the ability to shape this, and yet they are suffering from horrid consequences from COVID. They are suffering from significantly reduced oil prices that really cuts government revenue. Do they have as much time as they think they have? that they're as confident as you're suggesting. I think the problem is the factional competition inside has a potential to lead to fatigue in the negotiations. And if there isn't adequate progress made before the Iranian elections, this can just drag out. And that's where things get dangerous. If it starts to drag out for too long and the Iranians begin to shift their positions and demand more or seek too much from the U.S. too quickly, I think that's a problem. They need to be preparing, I think, for three scenarios, ultimately. The immediate return of the U.S. to the JCPOA, which would require Iran to immediately return to compliance. And of course, that's not going to be perfectly possible because rolling back all of those sanctions and what to do with all of those centrifuges isn't going to be something that they can all deal with on day one. There's possibility two, which is the declaration of intent to return and the creation of a process that is probably incremental, where both sides agree to a staged and phased sequence of compliance for compliance. I'll give you this, you lift that. Um, And I think that's the more realistic prospect. And of course, there's the third scenario, which is the bigger one, which tries to build on the JCPOA through extension of sunsets and timelines and bringing in the ballistic missiles and the regional issues. And, you know, while I do think that process is really important and necessary, I don't think that either side should be too ambitious and move to the JCPOA to part of the discussion until they've really got some consensus on the JCPOA as it stands. You talked at the very beginning about how Iran has a factional government. There are different schools of thought with lots of different objectives. Do you think fundamentally there's any consensus in leadership about their desired end state? I mean, is is this all just about survival? And if you survive another day, you've won? Or are there people with a, a sense of what is both desirable and sustainable in terms of how Iran relates to the outside world? Yes, I think that there are people who have a vision of uh, what Iran can and should be. I'm not sure there's consensus, and that is the problem. I mean, I think quite simply, there are two camps. There's the pragmatist reformist camp that see stability and security defined by Iran's economic and thereby political integration with the region and the international community. And then you have the other side, again, simplistically, who fear that that integration strategy is going to lead to the unraveling of the Islamic Republic. So you you can't completely legitimize or normalize your relationship with the United States or your perceived enemies like Israel, uh, but you can come to a transactional agreement um, that is accepted by all parties. And it's in that space 
that Iran would like to see itself survive, but also economically thrive, be able to deliver improved economic livelihood to its population, continue to be a regional influencer. And I think that we're going to continue to see Iran's interference in other countries because that policy is perceived to be successful, unlike the JCPOA. But perhaps over time, and this is where I think that change could come, but again, it might be generational, through that economic integration, through uh, the greater trade linkages in the region, that you could see Iran invest more productively rather than destructively in its neighborhood. My general feeling or advice is always that you have to accept Iran as it is. It's not going to change. I actually just wrote a paper about Iran having a deep state, and that deep state is there to preserve and protect its interests. So accepting the deep state's interests would perhaps lead to less tension in the region because that state would feel less threatened and you know wouldn't be struggling so much to survive. But in accepting that deep state, of course, you're also abdicating any sort of influence and hope for change internally. You're going to step off of the human rights dialogues and you're going to basically allow for Iran to become a normalized authoritarian state like many others in the region. And as you've pointed out, the deep state is also the mastermind of this effort to support insurgent groups in regional countries and advance Iranian interests that way to be the voice of the resistance. That would be a hard pill, I think, for a lot of U.S. administrations to swallow. I think it would indeed. But at the same time, U.S. policies and specifically maximum pressure have empowered the deep state in a very dangerous way. First of all, they are being predatory towards Iran's private sector. They are forcing, let's say, safe havens within Iran to collaborate and engage with them in order to survive again under all of these sanctions. They're being predatory within the political system because of all of this insecurity. Whereas like if the foot is not on the gas pedal all the time, the deep state can relax a little and politics, civil society, discourse, everything comes up again. Whenever all of that pressure is there, everyone has to sort of go under, you know, undercover. And it creates a sort of toxic environment where the journalists are not writing the critical articles, the civil society activists are under threat, and the private sector is now beholden to economic interests of uh, the deep state, which range from the IRGC to the parastatal foundations, to other parts of the deep state entities in order to survive themselves. So everyone becomes part of the same pot. It almost feels like the deep states created an environment where it's uh, heads I win, tails you lose, and they benefit however this plays out. Sanam Vakil, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. We haven't fixed it yet, so we'll have to have you back. Thank you so much, John. It was a pleasure to be here. Next up, John, Natasha, and I discussed the Biden administration's likely approach to Iran. So we just heard Sanam speak about how Iran is thinking about the incoming Biden administration. But I want us to talk about it the other way around. How much of a priority is Iran likely to be to a Biden administration? I think it's going to be hard because on the one hand, there's going to be an urgency to not have the JCPOA totally fall apart. You want to create some sort of momentum. But I think the more 
urgency you show to the Iranians, the more they tend to back away and try to use your urgency against you. And then you have this interrupting factor of the Iranian presidential elections, and it's going to be hard to do things before or after. You have the possibility of a Republican Senate undermining the president's foreign policy initiatives. You have the basic problem of how do you staff up an administration? I think that the Obama administration was also restricted a bit by that urgency. I think there were diplomatic failures uh, when it came to Israel and Palestine and when it came to Syria, and that made the JCPOA all that more important to seal the deal and maintain that legacy. And I think that created real limitations for the JCPOA as it stood. But it will be interesting to see how this administration handles that as they have the benefit of hindsight. And many of them were were active during that administration and those negotiations. But it seems to me that there was a way in which the Obama administration had made an assessment that Iran was central and the JCPOA was the most important thing they were doing in the Middle East. I'm not sure that the Biden administration will give the same primacy to Iran. I think it's probably good not to show Iran that that's the most important issue because the Iranians would try to play with it. But I don't know where Iran fits as an organizing principle of regional strategy. And after all, the the broader regional strategy is the U.S. has to have less of a military footprint in the Middle East. Does that not sort of necessarily involve Iran to some degree, though? I mean, Iran has a military footprint in lots of parts of the region and and poses a military threat to various parts of the region. Is it not still going to be a principal part of how a Biden administration would achieve that reduction of the security role it's been playing? Yeah, but the U.S. also sells a lot of weapons to people who feel threatened by Iran. We have a lot of close relationships with countries that feel threatened by Iran. As you heard Sanam say, the Iranians are convinced that their regional strategy, sort of using proxy forces and and others to remind you of the pain that Iran can inflict, is likely to be one of the enduring parts of the Iranian strategy. This is a very hard puzzle to untie. The same way Sanam talked about how untying the Gordian knot of American constraints in Iran are also very hard. And there was an interesting, actually, Chatham House report that came out last year interviewing regional actors, including Gulf allies of the United States. And for them, nuclear proliferation of Iran was not the priority. It was regional ambitions and missiles, which is going to be much harder to negotiate with Iran on. But I think that this administration would do well to sort of bring in those regional actors and stakeholders into any kind of negotiations that move forward instead of siloing them off for the benefit of broader stability and hopefully more sustainable peace that would come from any kind of negotiations with Iran. And I've heard a lot of people clamoring for a more mutual regional security paradigm moving forward rather than sort of just transactional bilateral deals. And it's, of course, hard to bring these countries in because their instinct is, let's give the Iranians nothing. The question for the Biden administration is, what will you be giving these countries to win their support that won't undermine what you're trying to do with the Iranians? This is a very difficult dance. I think it really ultimately is going to come down to a lot more art than chemistry. And I think the sort of former Obama administration officials would say that that regional piece was always meant to be the second phase of their strategy and that the JCPOA was just the first 
part and in some ways, maybe a confidence building measure, a very big one, but to lead to that regional peace. And, and now it does seem like it's not going to be possible to divorce the two. And so it does need to happen all at the same time, which is a daunting task. Yeah, it makes it much harder. You know, as they say, you're trying to fly the airplane and build it at the same time. I suppose I understood the logic of that, uh, signing the JCPOA and then and then waiting for other issues. But I also see the benefits of looking at the whole chessboard. And if you claim to have interests in a more stable Iraq or a Lebanon with a weaker Hezbollah or no Hezbollah or peace and stability in Syria, then this administration really needs to think about what issues it wants to tie to any kind of deal with another country in the region. How much interest do you think there will be from the other partners of the JCPOA, so from Europe, from China, Russia, to be involved again in these negotiations? Do they see this as urgent as well? Europe, China, and Russia have very different views between them. Europe would really like to get a multilateral framework back in place and and is desperate for the U.S. to recover its old leadership role. China, in this very strange way, doesn't want there to be a war, but doesn't want there to be peace either. China benefits tremendously when Iran and the United States are at loggerheads. And I think China is not going to obstruct, but may do what it can to complicate. I think Russia is purely opportunistic. Russia will look to make deals. Russia will look to advance its own interests. Although, according to this report that I just mentioned, Russian experts do believe that proliferation is actually the biggest concern for the Russians. And when I've spoken to other Russian experts, START and arms deals tend to to fall on the top five of their priorities list. I suppose uh, I wonder, now with my European hat on, for other actors looking at the United States, how much should these other countries believe uh, that whatever a Biden administration tries to do will actually be carried out and will be long lasting? Why should they put a lot of effort in? If you look at the last few decades, Iran has gone from being part of the axis of evil under under President Bush. Obama obviously reached out and uh, signed the JCPOA. Then President Trump has adopted this maximum pressure campaign. Now it looks like a Biden administration would return to diplomacy. There's this pendulum of diplomacy and then seeing Iran as sort of the ultimate adversary in the in the region. Isn't there something to be said for the fact that other countries might be concerned that whatever President Biden might achieve will just be undone when someone else becomes US president after him? Yeah, but what's your alternative? I mean, you might not like the idea of a, a vacillating United States. The second best option is even less appealing. And I think Europe is going to be so desirous of having real U.S. leadership and so desirous of bringing the U.S. back into a negotiating framework that it will try to do what it can to make permanent whatever the U.S. does. But there's not really an alternative to the United States for them. And for the Iranians, frankly, the prize is not to have an accommodation with Europe. The prize has always been the United States. And I suppose that this also isn't a new problem. Most of the governments that the U.S. has worked with over cross generations have stayed in place, whereas you know the U.S. democracy has had to shift, as democracies necessarily have to. And that needs to be taken into consideration, at least on the U.S. side, that Iran and others will 
continue to hedge their bets because they know that something might end after this administration or the next one. And therefore, these regional aspirations that they have and building up militias across the region are what they see as a a very positive tactic that can shore up their, their own security. How does Israel look at Iran now? Its position in the region is shifting somewhat with these normalization deals. Does that play into how the U.S. approaches Iran? Does that play into how Israel approaches Iran? It's interesting to me because as these normalization deals unfold, it's increasingly the case that Iran can also point to being sort of the leader of resistance when it comes to Palestinians. They certainly do not have the credibility that they once did, to be honest, since 2006 with the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. But that's one thing to consider. And the other is what I just spoke about, which is bringing other allies into the conversation to ensure that they don't start hedging their bets and thinking that the U.S. has abandoned them. Because sometimes those maneuvers can be to the detriment of the region more broadly. You could argue that a lighter U.S. footprint in the Middle East leaves the Israelis to form deeper relationships with some of the Gulf countries. And you could argue that actually enhances Israeli security, that once the Trump administration has gotten this ball rolling, that Israel can deepen ties with the UAE and and with Bahrain, and perhaps even with Saudi Arabia. And the fact that the US is not protecting them all from Iran drives them together. So I could see the Israelis benefiting to some degree. Ultimately, though, it seems to me that everybody is still going to stay focused on the United States, both Iran and Israel and the GCC states that are increasingly in dialogue with Israel, that there's not a way for the United States to remove itself from the center of this equation, although stepping back a little bit may actually enhance cooperation between Israel and these newfound partners. Well, John and Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Will. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.